Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDIC. Welcome to the Deep Dives podcast here on the No Ceilings NBA podcast network. I'm your host, Nick Agar-Johnson, and I am back once again with my No Ceilings colleague, Stephen Gillespie. Stephen, how are you doing this fine afternoon? Uh, I'm spending time with you, man. Like, is there a better way to, like, spend an evening? I feel like I've opened with that quite a bit, but I, I really do enjoy the time that we get to spend together on Deep Dives. It's been it's been great. Does that mean I'm off the draft deeper shit list or no? I mean, I'm only one third. I think that we're getting closer. Uh, I think that there's still some terms that need to be be reached on your part. You know, this is just mm-hmm. the extension of mm-hmm. an olive branch coming from you. You got to try a little harder, but uh, I think you're you're taking steps in the right direction. Got it. Well, hopefully, I can get forgiven for my crimes of trying to help people. <laughs> that uh, I really, I really do feel do feel bad about that. Definitely won't be making that mistake again. Yeah, I mean, you you should understand by now some, you know, people don't always want to be helped, you know, on on no ceiling. Sometimes we just want to kind of hide in our hole and and just forget about everything else. (laughs) Okay, uh, well, on that note, uh, today we are going to be talking about your most recent article on someone who is honestly pretty close to being the most my type of guard in the second round of this class in Des Moines Hodge out of Missouri. Mm -hmm. And you know, he's someone who I think of as my type of guard because he's an incredibly efficient offensive player and he's someone who generates a ton of turnovers on the defensive end. But you're the guest here and this is your article. So I want to start with your thoughts beyond my sort of basic analysis. Uh, let's start with a general overview from you. So what were your thoughts on Des Moines Hodge when you dove into his film and actually saw him for this piece? Well, I mean, there's a number of guards that kind of fit that same, you know, archetype in this draft. I feel like, you know, defensive minded first guards, not super big, uh, great rotation guys. And you kind of hope that the the, the three point shooting is, is there to, for them to get the opportunity to see the floor. So with guys like Reese Beekman, um, you know, kind of play different positions, but occupy a lot of the same space on the floor. I would say even guys like Jalen Clark, you know, shout out to Pac-12 for really getting the uh, first team nailed down with uh, excluding for another program there. But hey, at least Hawk has made it. <laughs> yeah, and so did Tubelis. So we got totally Tubelis in there, but we did not we did not get Jalen Clark. But um, just defensive minded guards that I think will ultimately end up occupying a lot of the same space in the NBA at their highest levels and. I went before I went into the film, I was a little underwhelmed. I didn't really have him close to my top 60. But, you know, after the film dive, after going and seeing him in person, I feel a lot more comfortable in that because, you know, the I did some analytics that made me feel better about it. I did some kind of pro comparisons within the piece that made me realize like, okay, NBA teams do typically like to take a swing at a player like this. So that was pretty encouraging. 
So let's take a look at some of those analytic numbers that you mentioned, because I think they're you know pretty good at getting a general broad encapsulation of who Hodge is as a player. So you ran this query, and I'm just going to read it off really quickly. So sure. minutes percentage, at least 70%. So you know spending 70% of his team's minutes on the court. BPM of at least 8. Offensive rating, at least 120. Usage percentage, at least 20. Effective field goal percentage, at least 60. True shooting percentage, at least 60. And then you add in a second qualification later on for blocks percentage of 2.5 and steals percentage at least five. Now, something that I talk about all the time on this particular program is how steals percentage tends to translate to the NBA at an incredibly high rate. So, I mean, when I look at these numbers and I see the effective field goal percentage and the true shooting percentage above 60 combined with, you know, it's not just the steals percentage. It's also that he's getting blocks at a really high rate, mm-hmm. especially for a six, four guard. You know, when you combine all of those factors, that's a list of traits that frequently translate to the NBA. So, you know, right away you're seeing someone in Des Moines Hodge who, okay, we can expect him to be an efficient offensive player who wreaks havoc on the defensive end at the next level. It's pretty clear to see that projection. Yeah. And I think too, that when you look at a six, four guard, you immediately think like, okay, how is he going to facilitate within an offense, you know, as a playmaker. And I think that that could be a little misleading sometimes, especially with a player like Des Moines Hodge, which, you know, that's probably one of the bigger weaknesses in his game is that he, he's not really like a ball on the ground playmaker type guy. Like he has the capability of, taking a couple dribbles when he's chased off the line, he can make the next pass over type thing, but he's not going to manipulate the second level of the defense or anything like that. Right. Like he's pretty much just like a straight line player on offense. But I think that within the NBA, we talk about it all the time that, you know, with these jumbo playmakers that exist with a lot of initiators, really all you need to surround those types of players with are your Des Moines Hodges guys who, can reliably stretch the floor on offense and then defensively they can pick up some of the more difficult assignments that way your offensive engine isn't having to exert so much energy on the defensive side of the ball it's interesting because you know as you mentioned his arguably greatest weakness is sort of the primary area that you'd expect for a 6-4 guy but Mm -hmm. the flip side is with all the other tools he has he has so many different ways to earn a path in an NBA rotation right like he's someone who you know okay maybe we don't want him to be you know the primary playmaker but you know if you're the Dallas Mavericks right it's like okay well we have Luca right we don't need him to be creating offense himself right if you you know stick him on the Phoenix Suns right like you have Chris Paul, you have Kevin Durant, Devin Booker, right? DeAndre Ayton, like he's someone who could definitely make a lot of sense as a fifth guy in that lineup, right? And, you know, you keep going through these teams and really it's like as long as you have someone who can be your primary playmaker, right? You know, maybe it's a shorter guy like a Chris Paul. Maybe it's a, you know, bigger guy like a Luka. But someone like Demore Hodge can be someone who you throw out there and you say, okay, your assignment is going to be take on the toughest defender or take on the toughest defensive assignment, Right go to the corner, space out, and just fill in on offense. And that's someone who can provide a lot of value to a lot of different rotations. Yeah, and I mean, even the even the game that I went and watched, and we'll talk about this more later, but his teammate Kobe Brown draws a lion's share of the attention on, you know, on offense. You know, he's kind of the, the pressure point within, within the offensive system. And having a guy that can shoot 40% from deep who – uh, it's funny. I kind of talk about how Demoy Hodge kind of moves like a like a foosball player teammate, you know, <laughs> where they're they're attached on a similar pole. So when one guy moves, he does too. He just knows how to fill gaps, and it's just like a a natural ability that shows up in his game. So 
when you have a player like that who really isn't like um I wouldn't say he's a, a top shelf athlete or anything but thing like that but he's not deficient as an athlete either you know being able to be intelligent with his softball movements uh, he displays a little bit of cutting ability he just knows how to find the right openings with it that the defense gives him and he can capitalize from pretty decent range too he's not like toe hugging the line or anything like that he can he can reliably be a floor spacer and I think that even in the game that I watched against Georgia he showed that he can reliably space the floor. And that's that's key for a player of his size who doesn't have that, you know, elite handle. It's interesting because one of the players that we talked about during the first podcast we ever did together, which was back on your old show, Draft Capital, yeah. we talked about his teammate Isaiah Mosley. And that was a lot of what we liked about the potential translation for Mosley to higher level competition in Division One was his ability to be that floor spacer, that, you know, intelligent off-ball threat. And Unfortunately for Mosley, his three-point shooting has kind of fallen off, but that's the exact opposite of what's happened to Hodge. I mean, you know, he went from a 33.7% three-point shooter last season on a healthy number of attempts for Cleveland State to, you know, above seven three-pointers a game this season and knocking them down at almost 40% clip, 39.6% from long distance. I mean, that is a huge part of why, you know, Demoy Hodge is getting draft buzz, deservedly so, is because, you know, I mean, he was a ridiculous defensive player last year. You know, he had 2.2 steals per game for Cleveland State last year. But, you know, really the thing that's changed about his game, well, that's not true. The other thing is, you know, he was absurdly efficient from two-point range. He's yep. continued that this year, but, you know, 63% from two-point range last year, 62.5% this year. But the big difference for him offensively is that he's continued to take three-pointers at a high rate, but he's, you know, gone from 29.9% his freshman year to basically 40% this year. Yeah, and that steady improvement is something that you want to see. And I know that um, our colleague Maxwell Baumbach wrote a great pre uh, piece about teammate Kobe Brown and kind of what the buyer beware looks like for a player who has there's like a tremendous um, leap in production as far as like their shooting ability, right? So much like what Kobe Brown has done this year, we're seeing Des Moines Hodge do the same thing. So you you take that with a grain of salt, right? Like you say, okay, how come he hasn't been a good shooter? on what you would deem lower competition, but then he makes the jump into the SEC and the three-point shooting has improved. You know, there's some comfortability with the coach. You know, Coach Gates has transitioned from Cleveland State to Missouri with Des Moines Hodge, so he kind of re-recruited him whenever he got the job for Missouri. But it's just, it seems so repeatable. You know, watching the jump shot pregame, you know, he takes his, he took his process very seriously. The, the release was quick. Again, super repeatable. And then you watch the games, just the comfortability that he has. I would say that the volume that he's shooting it on this year makes it feel more real that the shooting has taken a realistic and reliable leap this year because of the sheer volume that he's putting them up now. And to be clear, you know, it's not like he was lacking in volume last year. He was just under six three-pointers a game last year. But, yeah. you know, I think really the thing is, you mentioned the confidence, and that's that's the biggest thing. I mean, he's never really struggled with the confidence to put them up, but, you know, he's increased that volume yet again this year over last year, you know, even though he was already at a place where he was pretty comfortable putting them up last year. And, I mean, you know, his kind of volume on difficult shots, 34%, you know, on six attempts isn't the worst thing in the world, but that's a far cry from where we're talking about this year with, you know, again, near 40% and more than seven attempts from deep a game. Yeah, and I, I think a lot has to be said about, you know, playing at Cleveland State. He was obviously their best player, enters the transfer portal, and then goes to Missouri. And talk about Isaiah Mobley, talk about Brown. There's a number of guys on this team that 
the defense has to pay a lot of attention to. So you can't really sell out on Odomoy Hodge. And I don't imagine that going away anytime soon if he makes the jump to the NBA where he's probably not going to be the best player in a lineup that he's featured in. But that's also okay because he's he's a guy that you can trust to make the right decisions. I mean, if you look at his turnover percentage this year, at the time that I wrote the article, it was just under 8%. So you're talking about a guy who's got a minutes percentage of 70 and less than 8% uh, on his turnover. So you're looking at a guy who isn't like a high-level passer, but he makes just smart plays. And whether that's him shooting, whether that's him cutting, or just making that simple read to the next guy over, he's he's a guy that your coach can count on. And we talk about that all the time, like how trustworthy are you as a playmaker um, for yourself and for others. And that again, that's just something that Hodges repeatedly shown this year with the jump in competition. Yeah, that's a great point. I mean, his, you know, relative lack, I guess, of playmaking in comparison to what you might hope for from a 6'4 guard. A lot of the concerns on that front are mitigated by how good he is at keeping possession of the ball. I mean, he went mm-hmm. from basically a one-to-one turnover, assist-to-turnover ratio his first and second year for, you know, Cleveland State. Actually, he had more turnovers last year than assists, and this year it's almost two-to-one, right? Yeah. You know, that's a dramatic jump. And, you know, it's not like he was throwing the ball all over the gym last year either, you know, only 1.4 turnovers a game. But again, there's a far cry between his shooting last year and this year and, you know, his ability to generate plays for himself and others without coughing the ball up between this year and last year. That's a huge jump in terms of, you know, his overall offensive efficiency in addition to just how efficient he is in terms of his shooting. Well, and, and again, like not much more is being asked of him other than what he is good at. And that's what you know, his coach understood that obviously having coached him before. And that's something that, again, is not going to change when you go to the NBA. You know, NBA coaches aren't really going to ask their players to do anything more than they're comfortable with. Right. Like during the offseason, there will be time for development and things of that nature. Like maybe try to find some things that you can experiment a little bit with, like what you see with Keegan Murray, you know, throughout the year for Sacramento, you know, very simple role when he first started. But you start being able to show some of those other wrinkles of your game in a more safe, controlled environment on a consistent level. Coach starts feeling more comfortable. Maybe a little bit just kind of gets given to you more and more. And I don't think that it's going to, I don't think that that's that different for what Hodge is doing in Missouri this year, because as the season has progressed, we've seen him get slightly more daring with his passing and playmaking. He's more confident in his role and he's one of the leaders of this team. So more is asked of him from a production and like a ultimate, like how much do we trust you to make the right reads? And again, coaches love that type of stuff, man. And being trusted by your coaching staff is what gets you on the floor at the next level. Right. So I, I, again, Hodge has a very NBA ready skill set. It's just how in demand is what he does, you know, that much more impressive than some of the other names that we've been talking about so far this year. That was exceptional, Keegan Murray pandering. So thank you for that. Really, Light the beam, baby. always appreciate it on here. There we go, flight the beam. Well, you had the in-person scouting experience for for the Kings, right? I did. I've uh, been to two games in the last week at Golden One, and uh, we did light the beam one of those two times. So that was that there was fantastic. Go. Yeah, I mean, you know, I don't want to get too off topic with Keegan Murray <laughs> because then we're going to spend the rest of the podcast talking about Keegan Murray. But yeah, he really just even in the last like month and a half or so has 
been given so many more chances to play make. You know, it's not just, okay, you get the ball, either you're shooting or you're immediately making the next read. He's getting some chances to, you know, show that he has a pretty decent handle to get himself looks in the mid-range rather than just, you know, getting looks at the rim, getting looks from three-point range and otherwise keeping the ball moving. And, you know, he's even been trusted a bit more to create plays for others rather than just be a play finisher. And it's gone really well. I mean, you know, it's not particularly surprising given that we saw him do almost all of those things at Iowa last year. But, you know, he established himself as a starter within literally two games. And then, you know, once he got to the point where it's like, okay, you can clearly fulfill the elite floor spacing element of your role you know let's see what what else we can expand on the offensive end and you know it's not always going to be perfect but it's certainly a far cry from you know earlier in the season where it was basically just like if you don't get the ball in a spot where you're going to shoot it immediately just shuffle the ball along to the easiest next guy open and have them create something with it instead yeah and i think that you know we talk about how usually the best role players in the NBA in college, they were asked to do so much more. And I think that's a little bit of what concerns people about Demoy Hodge is that he's already kind of playing in a role that you would expect him to do in the NBA. And typically again, like what Keegan has done, you know, some people kind of forget what he was like at Iowa last season, but he did so much for that team. And now he can go to the NBA and scale it down and put, you know, some concentrated effort into just a, a few skill sets this year. Um, Demoy isn't going to be asked to do that, right? Like if he hmm. does make the NBA, it's going to be, we saw your, your tape in, in Missouri, you know, maybe the Cleveland state stuff was a little bit more. Um, there was more responsibility, more put on his plate as a, as a passer playmaker, um, more of like a home run hitter within the scheme, Missouri, it's more safe because there's more talent around him. And I think, Again, making the NBA jump, it's gonna, it's probably not gonna look too dissimilar from what he's doing now if it hits. So let's before we get into the dive section of the article, talk about the four NBA players that you have as comps here for Demar Hodge. And I'm glad that we're getting into this. I'm pretty happy with that. Oh, great. Well, then why didn't you tell me sooner? We could have gotten to this. We could have gotten to this minutes. No, 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 no. It's good. So the first comparison you have here is Gabe Vincent. And I think that Gabe Vincent is a very interesting comparison here. Some of the defensive numbers aren't as obvious in terms of the translation. His steal rate isn't as crazy high, but I mean, he's someone who came into the league and, you know, pretty quickly earned his way into the Miami heat rotation over a few players. One in particular that is getting paid a lot more money than Gabe Vincent is to play basketball for the Miami heat. But you know, his all around game just fits so well alongside Jimmy Butler and Bam Adebayo and, you know, him being able to be that kind of complimentary defense first player is, you know, why he's earned quite a few starting nods for that Miami heat team, despite, you know, not being as heralded, let's say as some of the other players ahead of him in that rotation. Well, yeah, I mean, we're talking about a guy who didn't have high draft buzz coming into his draft class, you know, playing out of Santa Barbara. And one thing I touched on with Hodge is that he's listed at 6'4", about 180 pounds. And I think some people freak out so much about frame um, for for prospects that haven't even seen an NBA facility yet. And it just goes to show we'll get into some more of the guys who were more older prospects when they came out. You know, Gabe being a senior is a perfect example that you can still improve as a as a player, even though you're an upperclassman, you can still add to your frame and get more uh, strength to your game. And that's what we saw with Vincent. He 
he gained about 20 pounds since he's been an NBA player, which is crazy. Usually we talk about a guy putting on five to 10 pounds, putting on 20 is no small feat, but, you know, looking at the, the point per game production, the rebounds, the assists, the st- like the splits are, aren't even too dissimilar. And I, I kind of wanted to stick with players of similar builds, uh, players that when they made the jump in the NBA, they weren't asked to do too terribly much uh, other than what they were good at. And I think that, Gabe Vincent is another player that just kind of exemplifies that. Uh, his assist percentage was the one thing that was far superior to Demoy Hodge, right? But uh, in the minutes and usage and things like that, but pretty much everything else, Demoy, what he's doing this year, far and away exceeds what Gabe Vincent did in his in his senior season, in which obviously is when he made the jump to the NBA. It's interesting because I mean. You know, okay, maybe people have frame concerns, but I don't have any frame concerns with Demoy. I mean, he looks stocky when I look at him yeah. on tape. He does not look like someone who, I mean, you know, I've been, you know, certainly earlier on in his career, I was very worried about De'Aaron Fox's frame. You know, I've been pretty concerned about Turk Smith's frame, you know, basically sure. <laughs> since I started evaluating him. But I mean, you know, there, there are guys who, I mean, Tyrese Halliburton, his first year in the league, also ridiculously, ridiculously skinny. I mean, Hodges got, you know, a few pounds on where Halliburton was at, despite, you know, dropping a few inches in comparison to him. I'm not, I'm not particularly worried about his frame. I think he's pretty sturdily built for, you know, someone of his particular role and potential future outcome. Yeah, I mean, 6'4", it's an inch taller than when I see six, three, I start getting kind of skeptical. Like, is he really six? Sure. Is he more six, one, yeah. six, four is more of like a reassuring number in my opinion. But then you see like 175 pounds, 170 pounds, 180 pounds, like depending on where you go to get your information, you'll see varying weights and stuff like that. Unlike you, like I don't see it as a concern because I'm of the mindset where I kind of bake in that every prospect, when they make the jump, they're going to get a little bit bigger. They're going to get a little bit stronger. So really they're just, taking a jump together. So I don't really worry too much about it in in the current sense, but I know that some people do. And so like when I'm doing these pieces, I try to cover as much areas of concern as possible, even though that is not normally how I process uh, a player either. For sure. So the second player you have on the comparisons here, Corey Joseph, uh, former Sacramento King, admittedly not my favorite former Sacramento King. <laughs> I, was not a fan of his uh, propensity to go for a pull-up mid-range jumper with 19 seconds left on the shot clock, but he, as you mentioned, you know, has made an NBA career for himself. You know, played for five different franchises at this point. His three-point shooting, yeah, his three-point percentage has not really translated from college to the NBA, and you know, mm-hmm. certainly that's something that you might be concerned about a little bit with Hodge as well. But you know, the flip side is. As you mentioned in the piece, I mean, Corey Joseph was taking literally half as many three-point attempts as Dwight Hodge. The sample size is a lot smaller. You know, it's even with the sample size of three-pointers for any college player being, you know, almost too small to draw comparisons. I mean, at this point, Hodge has taken over 500 three-point attempts in his college career, and he's at, you know, he's already higher than Corey Joseph in terms of career percentage, you know, at 35.2%. So, I don't know. I mean, it's interesting because, you know, I feel like the shooting is so much more of a plus for Hodge than it was and has been for Joseph. But I also did not expect Corey Joseph to have had as long of his NBA career as he's had, especially after leaving Sacramento and still 
being in the rotation for Detroit was not expecting that. So if Hodge can have that kind of career where he's, you know, playing nearly a decade for five franchises, I'm sure he'll be very happy with that. Well, I mean, and so much of it too is like luck of the draw, like where you get selected. And Corey had the benefit mm-hmm. of playing in San Antonio and getting a, a championship ring for his efforts and contributions to that team. And I mean, we we know who run NBA front offices, maybe not a personal level, right? But we know what, you know, owners, GMs, executives, they look for guys who, you know, towards the end of the bench, like, are do you have championship experience? Are you a mentor? Like, do you carry yourself? Well, are you a likable guy who just so happens to be one of the most talented basketball players on earth, right? So is, you know, Corey was drafted at the end of the first round and even exceeded late first round expectations. You know, we we talk all the time, almost like at a point of exhaustion to where, you can really only bank on about 20 to 25 players really making it within a particular draft class. And Corey was drafted after that 25 point and has stuck around in the NBA for, you know, over a decade now. And I don't think that it's crazy to look at these two side by side again, similar in stature and frame. And, you know, Joseph, another guy who's now about 200 pounds and has put on substantial weight, uh, had higher minutes percentage, but a lower usage percentage than Des Moines, which is pretty crazy considering how talented and hyped Corey Joseph was going into Texas, but the free throw rate's pretty similar. Uh, Hodge is a better shooter, and I would say that that almost kind of points to a sign of the times in which Corey Joseph played basketball and the way college basketball was played at that time compared to, you know, what Missouri runs as an offense now. So again, the the volume, the uh, the consistency from deep is so much more uh, advanced for Des Moines Hodge now, and I just think that. It was also fun to compare these two side by side because similar size frame and probably similar uh, ways of being used in the NBA. All right. We will get into Steven's other two comparisons for Des Moines Hodge right after this. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. All right, and we are back here. So, Stephen, we're going to go through your other two NBA comparisons here for Demoy Hodge. And this next one, you admit off the top, it's a bit lofty, but yeah. I think it makes a lot of sense in a lot of very intriguing ways. So your third comp here is D'Anthony Melton, who's had some real success, you know, earned his way into multiple different NBA rotations. But, you know, some of the stuff in terms of the actual production on the court in college is pretty similar between the two. Now, again, this is, you know, a high end comparison for Des Moines, but you know, it's one that I think makes a lot of sense. Yeah. And I think that sometimes we have um, revisionist history when we look at a player like D'Anthony Melton and we see the success that he's had in the NBA and he was a, a freshman at USC, which has put out a number of good freshman prospects, you know, throughout its history. And you look and see where Melton was drafted and, again, the success he's enjoying now, and you're like, oh, well, he should have been taken higher. Well, he wasn't. You know, he's <laughs> another one of these guards that wasn't all that efficient, was undersized. You kind of worried, how does the playmaking translate, right? And how important is it to, yeah, sure, he's a really good, like, maybe one, two, sometimes three position defender, 
you know, if, if you're kind of limited as an undersized guard, you can guard maybe a couple positions. How valuable is that to a team? Well, D'Anthony Milton has shown on a number of teams now that pretty daggum important, you know, and you look at the, the athleticism, I would say, uh, obviously is in Milton's favor. Uh, the playmaking was another one that is right up there. But, you know, the the rest of the game, though, like the overall defense, the the efficiency from from outside tilts to tilts to Des Moines here. So obviously, I, I think that the best version of Des Moines Hodge would be a De'Anthony Melton, which is what, like maybe a sixth, seventh, eighth best player on a really good team. And you can do far worse than that. And again, you look at and see where these guys get drafted, Nick. It's like you just take a flyer on these types of players. And if they got the the work ethic that all these dudes have, they're going to find a way to make your roster and make you fall in love with them. I mean, he's pretty close. I mean, he's, you know, in the top five in minutes this season for the Philadelphia yeah. 76ers who are, you know, a legitimate title contender. I mean, you know, to look at it in terms of sort of more, you know, in favor, I guess, of, you know, Demoy Hodge's side of things, D'Anthony Melton has really developed as a shooter over the course of yeah. his NBA career. But I mean, you know, he came into the league having shot 28% from deep in his one season at USC. And then, you know, 30.5% his one year in Phoenix, 28.6% his first year in Memphis. I mean, we're at the point where, you know, he, that was his age 21 season and he was at 28.6% from deep. Whereas, you know, Hodge is again, just, a tick below 40%. So the shooting is a big difference there, but I think you're right to sort of note the playmaking. That's really the huge difference. That's the, that's really the biggest difference there is just Melton's ability to, you know, keep the ball moving, especially in that Philly offense this year is something that I'm not sure you would really be willing to rely on Hodge to do, you know, certainly, you know, his first couple of years or so in the league. Yeah. And again, I don't know if it ever gets to that, which is why I'll have yeah. to, it's a lofty comparison, but again, similar size frame, defensive minded guards who, if they can kind of prove their worth uh, defensively, you kind of want to see what else they have on the offensive end. And Philly has had to really lean into that where his time in Memphis, he played next to another kind of small guard and he really, well, a couple of different smaller guards, right? With Jones and with jaw, it, he's shown that he can kind of take the tougher guard or wing assignment and really make other people's lives easier, which you know, those are the types of teammates that stars want on their team. And speaking of the kind of teammates that stars want on their team, well, some stars <laughs> anyway, I think others might not be as much of a fan, but your fourth comparison here is Patrick Beverly. And the thing that stands out to me here is Beverly has built, you know, the vast majority of his reputation on the defensive end. And yet Demoy Hodge has a better steals and a better block percentage than Patrick Beverly did. Now, Granted, Beverly, you know, played three years abroad before he actually landed, you know, an NBA contract. But yeah, I mean, you know, this is a guy who built his entire reputation on the defensive end. And yet Hodge has, you know, at least in terms of the box score stats, much better projections than Patrick Beverly did. Well, growing up a Razorback fan, man, like I'm truly astonished that Patrick Beverly has carved out a role for himself in the NBA. You know, he was, he's kind of a guy that you worried about taking shots sometimes, but I, and I don't know if that's really ever changed uh, in the NBA, <laughs> but he his defensive intensity was I I mean he just kind of reinvented himself you know for his time overseas and I I end the comparison between you know Des Moines and, and Beverly with the sentence that re reads you know 
Having not played into in the NBA until age 24, Beverly offers a bit of hope as to how Demoy could impact the game as an upperclassman. You know, he was taken in the second round uh, in what 09, I want to say, spent a couple of years overseas, and, and then came back and hasn't looked back since. And teams are still looking at him as a as a guy who's a, a culture player. You know, a guy who can come in and really mentor mentor players. He's a tough nosed guy, and again slight of frame, you know, a little bit undersized. And these, again, I, I can't help but look at how Demoy compares to these guys that are either undrafted, taken late in the first or second round picks. Far cry from being a, a, a highly sought after prospect, but they still find a way to stick around in the NBA. And that's kind of the case that I wanted to build for Demoy in this piece. Yeah, I mean, you mentioned the, you know, notion that only 20 to 25 guys stick from each draft. And, you know, that's traditionally been, you know, how it is, right? Like, you know, Mm -hmm. usually your odds of getting an all-star type player with a number one overall pick is, you know, very, very high. And then, you know, from there, odds drop dramatically, even just down to the second pick in terms of, you know, actual all-star, all-NBA kind of upside and ceiling. But, you know despite the fact that there's only 20 to 25 guys that, you know, last to second and third contracts out of each draft, you know, there's always a few that are, you know, late second ground guys or undrafted free agents. And I mean, you know, of the guys that we talked about, right. Patrick Beverly was a second round pick, but didn't get signed as a second round pick, you know, nope. played overseas for a few years. DeAnthony Melton was the 46th pick in his draft and, you know, pretty quickly established himself as a role player. I mean, Gabe Vincent went undrafted and you yeah. know earned his way into your rotation, right? There's always a few guys who aren't, you know, in that top, you know, 15 or even the lottery range who end up being, you know, members of that group of 25 or so that actually make a long-term NBA impact. And, you know, we'll get into the specifics of the offense shortly, but, you know, with Des Moines, I mean, the projection for his ability to be an efficient offensive player is very high. And on the defensive side of the ball, I mean, the rate metrics that translate at the highest levels are saying, this is going to be a guy who is going to continue to generate her generate turnovers at an elite elite level at the next level. And you, when you combine that with his offensive package, it's like, there are so many teams in the NBA that could use someone like that for 10 minutes a game off the bench. And with him, you have a very, you know, very high likelihood that at least those two things, the shooting and the steals will translate at a high level to the NBA. And, and like you just, I think you kind of summarized it beautifully, Nick, is that teams want what he brings to mm-hmm. the table, you know, and he doesn't have to be taught to adapt or adjust to a new role. You know, it's again, move with the move away from the ball, but move in tandem with the ball handler, find those open spots capitalize on your crazy range um we'll get into the shooting and you know things like that but synergy is very kind to him um Mm -hmm. and it's not undeserved he's 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 doing it on his own but synergy is very kind to his shooting uh prospects and you know again defensively can you be trusted to to be a disruptor in the passing lanes can you lock up your man by staying in front of him do you have the recovery tools um with within your skill set that and in the NBA, you're going to get beat. You know, it happens, especially if you're going to be taking on these tougher assignments. You're going to get beat. What do you look like whenever a guy gets the first step on you? You know, and I think that Des Moines has carved out a nice role for himself in that regard as well. So let's move on to some of those numbers that you mentioned on the offensive end. And 
some of the synergy numbers in the piece. It's funny because this piece is a grand total of four days old as we were recording this, and yet it feels older. It feels like I wrote this like two <laughs> weeks ago. I don't know why it feels that way, but well, maybe that's because his numbers have already gone up from when you wrote about probably it, it right? <laughs> Yeah, so as of right now, he currently grades out in the 97th percentile offensively on Synergy, 88th percentile in transition, 93rd percentile in the half court. He ranks in the 90th percentile on jump shots. He ranks in the 87th percentile in catch and shoots overall, 82nd percentile unguarded, 79th percentile guarded. It barely even makes a difference if you've got a guy on him or not. And, you know, 78th percentile at the rim, 83rd percentile on layups. This is someone who is ridiculously efficient, right? I mean, you know, we talk about frequently in the No Ceilings podcast feed family about how wild it is to be in the 70th percentile or higher in most of these stats for college players. And, you know, we're not talking about 70th percentile here. We're talking about 80th, 90th percentile on basically all of these. Yeah, yeah, 70 percentile is like a bad day for what Tamoy has been doing <laughs> all season long, man. And it's, again, just he's so savvy and intelligent. And I think that in today's NBA, it, intelligence and know-how, the intangible feel that players have, you know, just the in, instinctive nature that they possess just to be in the right place at the right time. I feel like we still kind of undervalue that in a crazy way. You know, especially for players that we project to be role players at the next level, you have to have that. Like, that's the baseline. We look at athleticism and things like that. And I feel like we we do a bad job of kind of overvaluing and overrating that where if a guy really knows how to play basketball, we're talking we're in an NBA now, Nick, where Luka Doncic and Nikola Jokic, I'm not saying they're terrible athletes, but they're not like your one percenters or anything. You know what I mean? They they know how to use their body to their advantage. They use their intelligence and off-ball movements and the subtleties in their game to be one of the best within the game. And then the role players, you kind of have to do that too. And that's what Des Moines has shown all season long, that he knows how to do that. The Golden State Warriors sort of revolutionized the league when it came to just shooting and you know the frequency of putting shooters on the floor. But I think you know the underrated aspect of how they've revolutionized the league is just how many read and react principles they have and how that sort of proliferated to the rest of the NBA of, you know, if you are not someone who, when they get the ball can, you know, make a quick decision, that's a good decision. You know, it's going to be that much more difficult for you to stay on the floor. And, you know, I tend to go back to the Kings a lot because that's, you know, the team that I watch the most and, you know, so much of their offense this year has just been, okay, you know, two-man game between Demonis Sabonis and Kevin Herter or two-man game between Demonis Sabonis and De'Aaron Fox or two-man game between Demonis Sabonis and Keegan Murray or two-man game between Fox and Herter of just, okay, we know that, you know, when we get to this point where it's a high dribble handoff between Sabonis and Herter, you know, there's three different ways it can go, right? Either Herter's going to curl behind or he's going to, you know, set a back screen and try and roll to the rim or, you know, he's going to take the handoff from Sabonis and, kick it out, kick it ahead to Keegan Murray in the corner, right? If mm-hmm. you don't know which of those options they're going to do until, you know, Domas gets the ball at the top of the key, you're not going to know how to guard it defensively, right? If there are three different incredibly efficient actions that they can play off that initial set, 
And if you're not someone who can read and react quickly, then all of that falls apart. And, you know, there's a reason that the Kings offense is, you know, one of the best we've ever seen this year. There's a reason that the Golden State Warriors have been, you know, one of the best offenses we've ever seen as well, despite, you know, everybody calls them out for not running as much pick and roll as they should. But, you know, that's because so much of their offense is read and react plays where you're not setting those picks. You're just, you know, flowing into the offense and hitting whoever's open and keeping the ball moving. You know, players who can fit into those kinds of schemes, I think, as you mentioned, are really underrated. And as more and more teams continue to incorporate those sort of Golden State read and react principles, it's only going to make the demand for players like Hodge who can fit those offenses you know even higher than it is now yeah and i mean you talked about two players in an action three players at the most within an action just in your little breakdown for the sacramento kings what do you need to allow those three players to be in at moments in close proximity to one another you need floor spacing right like you need people who open the floor up that make it difficult for the defense to be able to kind of keep tabs on two players at one times and what we've just read through for the season of Tomoy Hodge is that he knows how to fill those gaps and he knows how to keep the defense honest when it comes to how much can I play off of my assignment and help out with the, the star talent around me. And, you know, part of it as well, you know, a lot of this evaluation for Hodge relies on the shooting staying where it's been this year. But, you know, as you mentioned in the piece, there's a lot of reasons to believe in that. I mean, first of all, the fact that, you know, Last year, he was still a decent enough shooter on a very high volume of attempts. You know, that's that's a part of it, right? It's not like he was, you know, a 26% shooter and then all of a sudden he's, you know, in the in the high 40s. And, you know, sometimes even the 26% shooters like, say, Jaden Ivey, his freshman year at Purdue, you know, he was coming off being a 40% shooter in high school, you know, had one bad year, but that wasn't really the tale of who he is. I mean... With Hodge, we've seen signs of improvement, but we've also seen him do it at a really, really high volume for three years in a row. Even if he wasn't as accurate his first two years, you know, he has been putting up the shots, which is a huge part of being able to space the floor is knowing that defenses have to come out onto you. You know, part of that is just putting up enough shots, right? If you're doing the Rajon Rondo two shots a game, okay, I hit 37%, but they're two shots and they're wide open and I continue to be wide open because no one needs to care about guarding me. You know, that's not what we're talking about with Hodge here. Even if he does regress a little bit from the 40-ish percent range he's at now, he's still going to provide that shooting threat. And, you know, again, as you mentioned, the shot itself is gorgeous. And that's, you know, another good reason to buy into him continuing to shoot at that level. Yeah, and I just, I loved everything that you just said about how, you know, being able to be reliable, but we talked about how, that there's an upward trend and an upward trajectory with how Des Moines has grown as a shooter. I love that with the upward trend has been like an upward, you know, trajectory with the competition and level of mm-hmm. teammates around him, right? Like from junior college days to going to Cleveland state and then going to Missouri, like each time that he has taken a step, his productivity and his efficient, his efficiency has taken a leap with him and all those levels of competition. Now, I'm not here to say that if he goes to the NBA, he's going to be a 45% three-point shooter. Like, that would just be crazy. But I'm just saying that, like, an NBA team should take comfort in the fact that knowing that every time that Des Moines has been presented the challenge to be around stiffer competition and but also be able to play with better teammates, that his efficiency and his aggressiveness have also continued to grow with those um, leaps of competition and teammates as well. So let's move from the shooting discussion into 
the cutting discussion and yeah. cutting is something that I tend to talk about <laughs> quite frequently on this particular podcast. And it's, you know, again, part of the reason why Hodge feels very much like a guard that I'm going to be maybe higher on than I should be. But, you know, the idea with him is, and you mentioned this perfectly in the piece, the off ball stuff with Hodge has been mainly focused around his shooting, but that isn't all that there is. Yes, yeah. exactly. And, you know, again, this is the kind of thing where, you know, there are certain players who, if all you can do is shoot, we're starting to see those kind of players get phased out of the league. I mean, the, you know, examples that I always go back to just because they're the easiest recall for me, you know, Troy Daniels and Ryan Anderson, you know, those were elite. I always elite go to Jason Capono. Yeah. Oh, okay. Yeah. Fine. Well, yeah. Capono had, you know, a pretty lengthy NBA career, right? It wasn't like yeah. Daniels where it's like, wow, this guy's a ridiculous shooter. And then, you know, the more time he got in the league, it's like, boy, but he really can't do all that much else, can he? It's like, uh. you know, those yeah. players are falling out of rotations. But with Hodge, I mean, you know, the idea behind his cutting is, you know, you don't want to leave him too open beyond the arc. But, you know, if a defense gives him the lane to the basket, it's not like he's just going to continue to stand out there and wait for the ball to hit him in the corner, right? He's going he's gonna to take advantage of that opening in the defense. And, you know, it's a lot of the read and react stuff that we've been talking about, right? Of him just, you know, okay, I see my opportunity to cut to the rim. I'm going to do it, right? You know, it's not an opportunity that he misses. It's not a, you know, breakdown in the defense that he's not going to see, but it's also, you know, him being decisive about, all right, you know, this window's only going to be open for so long. And however long the openings were, you know, for Cleveland State, they were even shorter this year, you know, in the SEC with Missouri, and they're going to be that much smaller again at the NBA level. So him showing a proficiency for that, at the college level is extremely promising because it shows, you know, okay, he's an exceptional off ball threat as a shooter. But again, that's not all that he's doing when he's off the ball. And given that he's going to be spending the vast majority of his time in the NBA offensively off the ball, because, you know, he's not this crazy creator with the ball in his hands, him being able to do more than just shoot off the ball, you know, really will help him to, uh, to stick at the next level in my mind. Well, yeah. And you, you, you think about guys who, move well off the ball it's not just guys who and we'll, we'll talk about this later but coming off a of screen is just to catch right like you have to mm-hmm. be able to within one formation within one set you have to be a threat within a multitude of different looks right like how many times do we see plays happen where away from the ball there's a screen action and the guy who sets the screen stays there and the guy who sets the screen for makes a play to the rim but then there's also different variations within that same set where this screener, he might be kind of he might be the recipient of the pass off of another backdoor screen, like as the play in the in the set continues to progress, right? So the fact that Hodge can consistently move away from the ball and be a threat closer to the basket, um on smaller volume, I'll say that, you know, at the time of this piece, he was like 19 of 29 within cuts to the rim. And that's at about the 60th percentile, which is still pretty good for a player of his size and frame on that volume. But it just means that the defense can't, you know, rest on their laurels whenever he isn't outside the three point line, he can still find a way to be a threat closer to the rim. And again, that's where that next pass over mentality for him comes into play too, because if the defense reacts to him having the ball closer to the rim. You can make, you can expect him to make a good line pass to maybe a player in the corner or back out behind him on the perimeter at the top of the key. Yeah. I mean, we've mentioned multiple times that, you know, the playmaking for him is sort of a relative weakness when it comes to his offensive game, but 
you know, it's relative, right? I mean, in terms of making the simple reads and making the simple passes, I mean, that's why, you know, I noted his assist to turnover ratio the way I did, yeah. right? It's like, he's making the right reads, you know, maybe he's not making the, you know, wild reads that go from, you know, you know, small open angle, you know, to close right away, you know, maybe he's not making the next level kind of reads, but as long as he just, you know, makes the correct reads and keeps the ball moving and doesn't turn it over, you know, that's really all he needs to do, you know, it'd be great if he could do a little more, but as long as he's just making the right reads and, you know, not turning the ball over, then, given the rest of his offensive game. Yeah. That's really all that he needs to do as a playmaker in my mind. Yeah. I'm right there with you, you know, keeping, keeping it simple, simple sometimes is just really pretty to watch when it comes to basketball. If you know, it's coming, you can still make it happen and it's the right play. Then that keeps the possession alive. You know, we, we noted that he doesn't turn the ball over a lot. You, you touched on the assist to turnover percentage. He's just, again, it's just another indicator that he is a player that you can, rely upon and it's not just outside the three-point line it's whenever he's active at moving towards the rim which creates openings for himself and for others so before we dive deep into the defensive stuff there are a few more offensive things that i just want to touch on so one thing for me is you know this sort of goes into play with you know sort of the playmaking stuff and you know where we sort of see him as an on-ball guy but his dribble jumper grades out in the 54th percentile. So, you know, that's solid, you know, not too bad, but especially in comparison to the rest of his, you know, jump shooting numbers, that's clearly a step down from, you know, how he is as a catch and shoot guy is his ability to do stuff off the dribble. And then, you know, you also touch on this in the piece briefly, but you know, the one thing that he really hasn't been doing very much and very well is shooting off screens. And that's something that, you know, especially as he continues to develop as a shooter, that's something that if he can get to the point where he's doing that at a higher level than he's doing it now, then that will be huge for his NBA projection. I mean, he's shooting 32% on three-pointers off screens so far this year. Granted, that's a very small sample size, right? He's shooting seven for 22 on those three-point looks. But, you know, even still, that's the kind of thing where, you know, when you add in the rest of his shooting package – you know, I mentioned with the Kings running those handoff sets earlier, right? You know, his ability to run off a screen and make those threes in addition to just hitting his spot-up looks is going to be huge for the number of actions the teams can incorporate him in at the next level. Yeah, and it just helps him with the how impactful he can be on any type of NBA team, right? Like, if, right. You can, if you're a threat to shoot off the move, then that opens, I think, the, the door more wide open for you on a, on a you know, just more... NBA teams will want you, right? So looking at that as a, an area of improvement for him, that can still happen, you know? And I think, again, far too often we look at these players, especially upperclassmen, and we just assume that the book is written on them, right? Where Des Moines, he isn't really shooting the highest percentage. We can look at the volume and, and kind of say, eh, that's not that great. And then if you want to look on the brighter aspect of it, you can say, well, hey, based on the touch that I'm seeing from everywhere else on the court, there's reason to believe it. Or if you were a naysayer and say, well, he's not a great ball handler anyway. Why do I trust him as a shooter off the move? You can you can kind of talk yourself into it one way or the other, right? But I think we need to just kind of buy into the fact that this guy has improved at every level, that each year he's added something different to his game, and that if he is lethal enough to shoot kind of off screens at, in some regard, right, like to where defenses are still going to be mindful of him just as much as they would be, you know, um, if he's stationary, that's that just makes him that much more deadly when he's playing off of these jumbo creators initiators at the next level. 
So let's move over to the defensive side now. And I've, you know, referenced again and again the steals numbers for him because those are the numbers that really pop off the page with him. Mm-hmm. But, you know, something that you touched on in the piece at length, which I definitely do want to go over now, is he's a shot blocker too. And, you know, yeah. that's that's something that is a particularly rare skill for guards. I mean, it's not as, you know, critical to the defensive profile as, you know, say someone who's your, your seven-foot, you know, drop scheme rim protector, right? But it is a pretty impressive part of his game and you know block numbers from college slash other professional leagues don't translate at the same you know level that steals do where it's you know you know i saw at one point it was like a 0.9 percent correlation basically between you Ooh. know non-nba steals percentages and nba steals percentages like 0.91 extremely high and you know that was a few years ago at this point so maybe the numbers are different now but the point being that Seals numbers incredibly highly correlate between non-NBA levels and NBA levels, but, you know, blocks do as well. So this is something that, you know, given that Hodge is as good as of a shot blocker as he is as a guard, you know, that's something that we could hopefully expect to see from him at the NBA level as well. Yeah. And I just want to lead this kind of my discussion point on the blocking is that an NBA team isn't going to pick him up because they want a shot blocking you know, six, four guard. Right. I, mean, I hope. Again, <laughs> right. Like that's just like a weird, you know, draft or free agency, you know, signing strategy that you would have, I guess, but it's, it's an interesting that, choice. It'd be an interesting yeah, choice. It, it, it's a strange way to go. I mean, it worked for Dwayne Wade. So why not try that with <laughs> Yeah, That's definitely why he got drafted fifth overall is because he was a shot blocker. There it's you go. Wall got picked number one overall is because he was a great shot blocking <laughs> point guard. Absolutely. But it certainly helps that if you're a defensive minding guard that you have the recoverability that that you do have with Domoy Hodge, right? Like within the article, uh, show him blocking Anthony Black, who the biggest sell for him is that he's a player of tremendous fill, but he's also very big, which means that he should be able to finish over these smaller guards. Well, not so fast, said Domoy Hodge in their matchup, right? Where <laughs> You know, it's a transition play. You you think that Arkansas has Missouri, you know, dead to rights on this possession because you're you're trying to stop Ricky Council the fourth and Anthony Black in transition. And and the player that comes up with the with the stop is a six four guard off of a block. It's just insane. The I, I talked about earlier in the podcast how he's not like a top shelf athlete, but he's certainly not deficient in that area. It's in his shot blocking that per, that shows it in particular where he has no problem challenging guys. And then another player for LSU, Adam Miller, he's one of the, he's largely considered one of, if not their best player on their team. And the fact that he chased him around, you know, a screen, different angles, different dribble moves and stuff like that, and was still able to recover and block his shot just really wowed me. And having a block percentage at the point in which I wrote the article of 2.5 and, Again, a guard that had 17 blocks on the year and potential for that number to climb was just flat out ridiculous. I love that first clip because that's, you know, as close as you can get to two points, almost guaranteed to be going up on the board and Hodge just erases it. And, you know, there's, you know, there's one thing to be said for defensive value of, you know, okay, when this guy contests, you know, they're. 5% 5% less likely to make the shot than league average. You know, if you're getting that from a rim protector, like Jaron Jackson has a Jaron Jackson Jr. has a ridiculous number this year of like, yes. you know, opponents are shooting like sub 50% against him around the basket, you know, as comparison to the league average of like 60%, you know, that's huge defensive value that you're contributing. But, 
Mm-hmm. Yeah, that's a lot more esoteric than just looking at that transition block and being like, okay, that was two points that were guaranteed to be going up on the board, and instead it is nothing. Yeah, I mean, you're talking about a crazy athlete who every time he takes flight, it seems like a dunk of the year with Ricky Council. And then again, Anthony Black, he's kind of one of these prospects that has varying ranges, but I know that there are some people that are really, really high on him and look at him as a potential you know, top 10 prospect, maybe even towards the middle of that top 10. And the Moy Hodge is your, is the defensive anchor back in playing off of both of these guys. And again, stops the play with a block, you know, didn't take a charge, didn't foul, didn't try to go for a tip or anything like that. He waited on Anthony Black at the rim and he showed him up. All right. We've touched on this time and time again throughout this podcast, but we have to hit it in depth one more time because, you know, again, as I said before, this is what jumps off the page to me when looking at Demoy Hodge stats. And, you know, he hopefully will not be drafted by someone because of his block rate as a guard, but it will definitely, his steals rate will definitely be a factor in him getting drafted, you know, in theory, him getting drafted or, you know, him getting picked up by an NBA team, possibly as an undrafted guy in this draft class. I mean, you know, if he does end up getting selected somewhere in the second round, I think the first round odds are pretty low, but if he does get selected in the second round, a huge part of it is going to be just how good he is at turning defense into offense with his steals. Yeah. And you know, the, I wish I could just go and list every still that he ever got, you know, within this article, but, you know, out of respect for your time as the editor, Nick, and the reader's time, um, more importantly, the second one is what's important here. I would say the reader's time more importantly, but I don't want you to think that I don't care about you either, brother. But, um, oh, well, that's, that was really kind. Uh, completely I mean, randomly in the middle I, of this podcast. I mean, I said, I cared about you. I don't know what more you want from me, but anyway, <laughs> fine. All right. There we go. That was more than I expected. <laughs> Remember what we talked about for the draft deeper crap list. All right. Anyway, yeah, um, back to, back to the Des Moines Hodge conversation. So I wanted to post a steal that I thought showed value than more in more than just a steal in of itself, right? So mm-hmm. uh, Cameron Matthews for Mississippi State, who Mississippi State's done a pretty solid job this year um, yeah, for what that's worth. But anyway, um, Cameron Matthews, who's about 6'7", 220 pounds, again, against our 6'4", 175, 180-pound guard, goes to post him up. And I think that a lot of people would look at this matchup and would just say, all right, well, that's you're, you're done. Like, Des Moines, you could do your best. This guy has the size. He's got the weight. He's a junior, so he's more crafty. He's more savvy. He kind of knows what he's doing a little bit. Um, goes to work against him, gets him in the restricted area, spins to his left, and gets into his shot. Uh, obviously, you want to have your eyes on the rim, but where he messed up was that he kept the ball way too low um, when he started fronting the rim. And Demoy, being as savvy as he is, comes up with the rip. So, He's showing you in this position that even though he's probably not the strongest that he's ever going to be, he is still capable of getting a guy uncomfortable within the block. And if the guy is just overly confident because he feels like he's got the size advantage, the more can kind of make him look a little bit silly with his just ball tracking ability. Yeah, I think that was a huge one to include because when we're talking about the defensive value here of Hodge, you know, a huge part of that is him being able to, you know, be effective in a switching scheme to not just guard twos, but to be able to guard up a little bit. And, you know, 
I think it's easier to see him, you know, guarding point guards because he's going to be closer to average point guard size than guarding threes. But I mean, when you're talking about, you know, again, six, seven, 220 pound junior in Cameron Matthews, right? It's like, this is the kind of player where if you're thinking that Hodge is someone who you might be willing to stick on threes for some moments in an NBA game, that's the kind of play you look at and say, all right, you know what? He's not someone who, if he gets a bigger guy backing him down, we just say, all right, curtains, let's you know look forward to the next play, right? And you know mm-hmm. that's something that is easiest to see with Marcus Smart if we're talking at the NBA level of you know guys just not wanting to post up that small guard because he's going to make you regret it. But you know, again with Hodge, I mean, his ability to find a way into an NBA rotation if he can guard you know one through three as opposed to just only guards, then that's going to open up a lot of avenues for him to get playing time. Well, and I think one, Marcus Smart should be like every 6'3", 6'4", defensive-minded guards. Like They should have a poster of Marcus Smart <laughs> above their bed and they just wake up every morning and say, today I want to be just like you. But <laughs> Tyler Rucker is smiling somewhere right now. <laughs> <laughs> I did it for you, Ruck. But um, Demoy, he shows the ability that what I think is most important why I wanted to post this clip was that not that you want to say, all right, in this game, we want you to guard the six, eight, 230 pound guy. You know, it's that an NBA team is going to want to hunt for a weakness. Right. And I think that sometimes that false sense of security that a player might get when they underestimate a player, just because of a size and a player like Des Moines Hodge, that's where I think Des Moines can get them in trouble. Not that you want them to front them on every possession, but in those especially when we want to talk about playoff basketball, you know, the six, four guy is probably going to get hunted by the other team's best player. And I'm not trying to sit here and say that Cameron Matthews is like on par with an NBA level best player or anything like that, but he has the size, he has the frame and he is an upperclassman. So he has experience within his respective level that it's, it's just a feather in the cap of Des Moines Hodge that you can make plays like this on the ball, on the block against guys that have plus size and weight on you. So let's get now to the last section here before we get to our wrap up section and just sort of, you know, I mean, you title this curtains and Mm -hmm. as you do with all of these pieces, when you get to the last part of the prospect breakdown, but, you know, I think a lot of it goes into what we talked about up top, you know, with the NBA comparisons, with the analytics comparisons, right? I mean, we're talking about someone who, you know, is likely to be in the mid second round if he gets drafted. Right. And, He's someone who I have in the mid second round now, you know, at, at this point in the process, I large part of the reason I bumped him up was after reading this article from you. So thank you for, you know, reminding me to go back and check out more of his film. But, you know, the idea here is when we're talking about the shooting and the steals, you know, the turnover generation stuff, these are the kinds of things that are so easy to see translating to the next level and when you, you know, combine that package of, you know, being, you know, his 6'4 height isn't a plus, but it's not like he's, as you mentioned, it's not like he's, you know, 6'2 or 6'3, but really actually 6'1 and is just listed at 6'3, right? Yeah. You know, he's someone who's got decent enough size as a guard who, you know, as you mentioned, maybe you don't want to, you know, throw him on threes all the time, but you can ask him to cover bigger guys in a pinch, you know? Mm-hmm. When we're talking about the middle of the second round, if he has... If I mean, I think his steals translation is pretty clearly an NBA level skill. You know, if you buy into the shooting, which I do, especially given that he's been a high volume shooter for a while, even if the percentage has taken an uptick this year, 
you know, he's been high volume all three years of his college career, right? It's like, there are so many NBA teams that could use a player like him. And if we're talking about the middle of the second round, right? Like, let's say he falls where D'Anthony Melton does, right? 46 overall pick. You know, I don't remember off the top of my head who that's projected to be this season. Maybe it's a terrible team because of trades. So I apologize if that's the case. But the idea being, you're talking about the second half of the second round. That's going to be, you know, playoff teams who, if you're getting someone as a second round pick as a playoff team, you would love for them to be a 10 minute a game role player, right? Like that's, that's pretty much the high end of what you're hoping for. You know, not everybody's going to be Isaiah Thomas and be an all-star at the end of the second round. But with Hodge, the, again, the shooting and the steals are just such obvious NBA translations that I think there are going to be a lot of teams in that, you know, mid to late second round range that could use him. You could use someone like Hodge in their building. Yeah. I'm with you, Nick. Like I think, everything that you're speaking to makes a heck of a lot of sense. And I think that there is a clear pathway for Des Moines to be an NBA player in some regard or at some capacity. I also could understand if what happened with every, you know, with some of these other players, like a Gabe Vincent, I could totally understand if a team goes the route of maybe just saying that let's go for some of these higher upside guys. I mean, we, we talk about it all the time that, if you feel like a player is an NBA player, then get them. And that's where I could understand, you know, a team saying, all right, Des Moines Hodge is an NBA player for all the reasons that we talked about throughout this show. But he's also one of these guys that I think a team would say, look, we got maybe one pick or two first round picks. We don't have any second round picks. He is our priority undrafted guy because we project all these other players to be off the board by that point. He is the guy that we want to bring into our facility. He's, if he does go undrafted, Nick, I wouldn't be surprised if he works out for a lot of teams and or if in, on draft night when we start seeing these guys sign, you know, their their two way deals and all this other stuff that he might be one of the the first names gone because he is just like you said, the steals translate, the three point shooting translates, and he just has like the the mentality that at, at every level I'm going to continue to get better as the competition around me gets better as well. And you know, something we've seen as more of a trend in the last, you know, three, four years in particular is, you know, guys who it gets to like pick 45 and they're, you know, basically going to their agent saying, you know what, I would rather not be drafted. You know, I want to be able to pick the team that I'm going to, you know, and for the most part, you know, when that sort of thing happens, NBA teams will be like, okay, great. You know, we're going to take this, you know, stash guy, or we're going to take this longer term project. And then, you know, as you said, like, you know, five minutes from the end of the draft, then, I would not be surprised at all if, you know, five minutes from the end of the draft, Des Moy Hodge has gone undrafted, but we see the news come down the wire that Des Moy Hodge has signed a two-way deal with the Denver Nuggets, right? Or the Los Angeles Lakers or the Miami Heat or the Toronto Raptors, you know. It's like there's a number of teams that you let off with, Nick, that number of teams that could that could definitely use a player like him. All right, so before we wrap up the Hodge portion of the discussion, I'm curious where you have him on your board right now. And this could be a rough range thing. I will have I will happily say exactly where I have him or give a rough range if you're more comfortable with that. But are you sort of thinking of him as we sort of talked about as like mid-second round guy, or do you think he's more of like a priority undrafted guy at this point? I have him more as a pretty undrafted and I know that we got an assignment due um, for the no ceiling family um, at the end of the week. And I haven't nailed him down yet in a range, but I, let's see my last update before, and I haven't tinkered with my board in a while. So I got to lead with that. 
I have there him at 80. I have him at 80 right now. So he's in that like not drafted, but definitely a guy who I see a pathway for him to become drafted and a player that I think has a real shot at being a priority undrafted guy. But if I'm looking at the names that I have listed above him, there's a lot that have just like I have fallen so much out of love with that I know that he's going to make a climb up because, yeah, there's lack of production, all that fun stuff. Yeah, I, he's he's going to make a jump on, for for my Sunday assignment. So I believe that on the last update, I had him outside of my top 60 I think that by the time we officially turn things in later this week, that he will be in that mid to late second round range for me. And, you know, the reason is, you know, a lot of what I've been talking about on this podcast of it's so easy to see his strengths translating and his weaknesses really are not going to be as important for him earning his way into rotation it's the kind of thing where like if he becomes a better passer that'd be fantastic if he becomes better at shooting off the dribble that really you know raises the projection of what he might be in the longer term but just based on his strengths where they are right now and his weaknesses being you know not as much of a thing that nba teams are going to be focused on certainly in the early portion of his career i think he's the kind of player who you know might end up being in the top 60 by the end of the season for me. And if not, is certainly going to be very close in, you know, if he's outside the top 60, he's definitely going to be in that priority undrafted range. Because again, there are so many teams that could use a player like him in their rotation. Yeah. And again, you know, I'm looking at some of the names that I have ranked ahead of him, like Keontae Johnson. Um, Let's see here. Uh, Jordan Miller, uh, a player that I like a lot, another upperclassman and Tyler Burton. Uh, Adam Flagler, mm-hmm. Flagler, Jalen Slauson, Ryan Kalkbrenner, um, Kobe Brown, which that order might flop on my next board. Kevin McCuller, Isaiah Wong, uh, just more guys. And I, I'm falling in love with the depth of this class, not because I think that it's like super duper top heavy, although I really like the lottery. I just think that once you kind of hit that like 45 on range, like the the margin of talent difference is so slim, it makes it more fun to kind of have to dive in and scout more. I think that you and I are the, well, yeah, I think you and I might be the highest remaining no ceilings guys on Isaiah Wong at this point. I I just, well, what is he not doing, <laughs> you know, as a, as an NBA level point guard, like what is he not doing right now? You're not going to get me to disagree with that one, man. Yeah. I, he, there's no way he's not a second round player on my board for the duration of the year. Like he would have to just have like, the most unnerving, um, you know, performance fallout of any player on my board for him to not be a second round player. Yeah, I have him. Yeah, it, it's going to be really hard for me to leave him out of the top 50. And he's definitely going to be in the top 60 by the time the end of the season rolls around. That's that I'm guaranteeing right now. And so no, let's no, let's I'm see me you. be wrong about that in three weeks when he like, I don't know, breaks every bone in his leg or something. Oh, don't say that. Come on, man. See, I mean, I, I, words as they came out of my mouth. I was like, no, that's too far. That's too far to go for the joke. Don't do it. And then the words had already left my mouth. So great. That's that's what we like to see. Uh, yes. <laughs> yes <I do. laughs> so before we wrap this one up, I just wanted to touch on two recent scouting trips that you have made. So why don't we start since we've done the bulk of this podcast on Des Moines Hodge by talking about the scouting trip that you mentioned in your Des Moines Hodge article that you 
wrote for No Ceilings last Friday. Check it out if you have not already. But so notes from your scouting trip for Missouri versus Georgia. And, you know, the first thing you note for Des Moines is he was the best player on the floor that night, which, you know, I think yeah. certainly plays into some of the positive stuff here. But, you know, I, I want to sort of lead off by just, you know, mentioning how you start the second paragraph. You know, his impact on the court was immediate as the first play of the game ended with Hodge emphatically rejecting the first shot attempt of the game. Yeah, I mean, you know, when you know when we're talking about his defensive impact, you know, again, the steals are going to be the headline thing for him, but he's someone who you can, you know, get contributions from in basically every area of the game. And, you know, clearly that was something that he was doing from moment one on the court in that Missouri-Georgia game. Yeah, I mean, he was just all over the floor. You know, the, the, the defensive scheme that that Missouri played, they pressed a lot to kind of start the game. Uh, they they did some zone stuff later. It was the amount of ground that Missouri asked players like Kobe Brown and Des Moines Hodge to cover with no matter what defensive scheme that they're running is just it points to the talent that both of those two have. And I, I think, too, leading the second, like he had the the first play of the first half. Um, I mentioned this block. The first play of the second half, I believe, was a three pointer. If I, if I'm if my recall is correct, so. He was just all over the place. Uh, all of his points came from deep that game. Uh, six of 11 shooting from deep was just flat out phenomenal. And then defensively, there was just not much that he couldn't do against Georgia. He he made life miserable for the Bulldogs all night long. You also mentioned the relocation stuff here, and this is where you quote the similar to how players on the foosball bar move together. I'm pretty like, happy with that, yeah. Yeah, that's... That's a good one. But yeah, I mean, that's, you know, the relocation stuff is, I think, you know, something that is interesting to see with him developmentally going forward. I mean, you know, his off the dribble shooting and, you know, his off screen shooting is really the only weak area of his shooting, you know, at least in comparison to everything else where he's, you know, 80th percentile or higher. He's, you know, as we mentioned earlier, like, you know, 50th ish in off the dribble shooting, you know, right around average in terms of off screen shooting. So, you know, him showing up as, you know, him relocating well, being a clear point of positive impact for him in this game. You know, I think that's a pretty positive side sign for him too. You know, granted, of course, it's only one game, but, you know, seeing him, seeing him do that well live is I think really, really encouraging because him continuing to develop in that area is going to be huge for him, you know, earning NBA minutes going forward. Um, again, it's just another positive indication of how he could perform as a role player in the next level, you know, playing next to Kobe Brown, Kobe got the lion's share of the attention from the Georgia defense and somebody else had to step up. And it turns out that Demoy Hodge was more than willing and more than capable of being that offensive threat throughout the entire night while still, again, being the, the best defensive player on the floor all night long as well. So we've mentioned him in passing, you know, basically throughout this podcast, but we haven't touched on him directly Let's move over to talking about Kobe Brown some now. And you know, he wasn't quite the best player on the court like Dubois Hodge was. But Kobe is someone who's, you know, very interesting. I mean, you mentioned that our colleague Maxwell Bombach, you know, might might not be uh, willing to take me off the draft deeper shit list just yet, but I will compliment him anyway for his excellent piece that he wrote on Kobe Brown recently. It's interesting because, you know, again, the shooting growth is more, I think, out of range from Kobe Brown in terms of like 
I could have expected a shooting jump from Demoy Hodge more than I would have expected one from Kobe Brown to the degree that he's made one. But, you know, if he can be like a league average shooter, you know, as Maxwell mentioned in the piece and, you know, as yeah, it's something that if he has really developed in that area, then given his play on the defensive end, you know, that's someone who could be a real NBA player as long as his shooting is just average because he does enough well, you know, elsewhere on the court. Yeah. And, Missouri does a weird thing where they ask him to play some five and things like that. And, you know, when I got to the game, I typically like to get there early, just like anybody else who scouts live games and watch the warm up stuff that takes place, you know, before the warm up, before prior to tip. Mm-hmm. And he was getting shots up like all like all throughout that time, took his stretching very seriously. Like I, I'd like a player that even though it's like routine and, you know, so regimented that you do X, Y and Z. Um, the same way, the same time, every time that he was locked into that routine and wasn't just kind of going through the motions. But I can kind of see why people would be hesitant with the jumper because it's it's not a a pretty jumper. It's I wouldn't call it busted either. You know, it's more like an over the shoulder launch than anything else. Where the more you watch it, and it's just too quick, two motion releases, pretty high release things like that. Kobe's is a little bit more. Uh, you know, it's, it's not as compact, it's not as quick, and it's not the motions of it aren't what you would typically want to see. Uh, and even during the pregame, I was not impressed with like the percentage that they were going in. Not that I was keeping track of makes and misses, but you just saw stark contrast between how Demoy looked in shooting compared to Kobe. But during the game, I, I mentioned in this article that I don't even know if this game is something that you could really get an accurate assessment for how Kobe Brown is as a prospect because Georgia was, they just swarmed him all game. You know, he didn't score in double figures. He he played in kind of garbage time, I think just to get to double figures and he still couldn't. Um, but I walked away more impressed with his defense than anything else because he, he rotated, you know, sideline to sideline a lot, made plays in the passing lane, got the ball at the court quickly in transition. So things you'd like to see from a player like him, and then offensively, like bully ball is kind of the name of his game. That's where he's most comfortable. And for, I don't know how that really helps his NBA draft prospects because it's not going to be asked of him. So the floor spacing, I walked away more concerned with. But again, you know, Georgia swarmed him almost every time he had the ball on his hand. So the flip side and some of the positive stuff, you and I actually talked about this pretty recently on a playback we did a few weeks ago about Grady Dick, where he was offensively on fire in the first half. And then, you know, he started getting double teamed a lot in the second half of that game. And, you know, the question that we had was, all right, what does he do to positively impact the game when he's not scoring? And the answer with Kobe Brown was, you know, he made a lot of plays out of the post, you know, something that we talk about frequently uh, cross no ceilings is you know being able to not go into the post up to score but you know to create plays for your teammates and that's something that brown did even though you know he was getting double he was getting swarmed he wasn't scoring as much he was at least creating plays for others with his passing out of the post so Mm -hmm. you know even if him being a post-up scorer isn't something that we can expect from him at the next level you know him being able to attack mismatches in the post and create plays out of it is something that you know definitely would be a part of his package if he does stick at the NBA level but the main thing is just the defense which you know as you mentioned right like if he's you know not having his best scoring night he's someone who can cover a lot of ground on defense can you know cover up a lot of mistakes on that end and even if he's not contributing as much offensively if he's contributing defensively in the way that he can then that can make up for you know 
a lot of negatives on the offensive end. And, you know, when we're talking negatives, we're talking him not reaching double digits for, you know, one of seven times all season, right? So it's yeah. clearly one of his worst offensive nights, and yet he's able to make impact in other areas without putting the ball in the basket. Yeah, and that's always kind of a, a fun talking point throughout the draft cycle is what does a prospect's bad game look like? And can mm-hmm. you still take away those positive indications? And you're right, you know, Kobe did a good job of making plays out of the post. Sometimes the pressure got the best of him where he did make a bad play. But again, when it's it's pretty different to pass out of the post when two guys are on you as opposed to three. And those angles are kind of choked off a little bit more quickly. So it just goes to show that Georgia obviously respected the scoring threat that Kobe presented and looked to take advantage of the the passing and stuff like that, you know, not being as big of a threat as the scoring, but Kobe showed throughout the game that he's definitely capable of making the right reads out of some pretty tough positions. And it was still able to get, you know, a pretty dunk and, and make plays in transition and things like that. Um, little concerned about, you know, what position he really plays in and thrives in at the next level, but he has the requisite athleticism uh, again, the defensive capability. And if the shot, improvement is real then that definitely helps him see some time in the nba at some level so before we move on to the second scouting trip and sort of wrap this bad boy up i just was curious about your sort of general thoughts i mean you mentioned at the top that stagman coliseum is a beautiful court but what was Mm -hmm. what was the trip like you know beyond just those two guys you know did anybody pop besides those two guys and just generally how how was it how was how how was the whole experience it was actually really cool, man. You know, um, got to go into the media room and, and, and meet some nice folks. You know, it's always cool. I, I shared with Albert on the, the last episode uh, for the for the listeners that heard that episode that one of the cool things about traveling and stuff like that is you get to see more behind the scenes stuff and meeting like staff, getting to walk through tunnels and media rooms and press conferences and stuff like that. It's all just like a a real humbling experience because, you know, I shared with Albert that a lot of us here at No Ceilings don't have like that traditional background for other members of sports media have, right? Like a lot of us are trailblazers and we got to where we are because we hustle and we work hard. And so I wanted to apply that same mindset and mentality when I got into those media rooms and the press rooms and I'm sitting in media row and I'm scouting and other, you know, there are people who've been doing this a long time that probably can't afford to not watch the game as intently as I did, but my eyes remain locked on the court. I wasn't like, you know, making small talk or anything. I was just my, my pen and my pad just sitting there taking notes. And the Steg is a beautiful stadium. Uh, Georgia's campus is really nice. Uh, I just I had a, a really good time getting a chance to talk to some of the players afterwards, too. And uh, it just it all motivates me to continue to work hard and and represent no ceilings the best that I can anytime I'm on the road. Well, speaking of talking to players, we almost buried the lead here because you got to talk to Taylor <laughs> Hendricks, man. <laughs> yeah, I mean, again, I talked with that about that with Albert a little bit yesterday, but talking with Taylor Hendricks was like really it, it's again one of those like humbling experiences like I'm talking to somebody that I know is going to be in the NBA like very very soon, like and has a real possibility of being a significant player moving forward, you know, so I'm talking with him at like his developing stages and this is no knock against UCF at all. They have a beautiful campus and their staff is, you know, just world-class. It's just also not like an NBA hotbed, you know, Mm -hmm. like there's not 
a long list of NBA players that that come from UCF and certainly not players that you expect to go, you know, maybe top 10, like back half of the top 10, certainly within the lottery. And being able to talk to Taylor and seeing him warm up in a stadium that is more of like a football school than a basketball school, it was really weird to get there like 20, 25 minutes before tip off watching him warm up and people haven't yet filed into their seats yet. Like throughout the game they did, but it was senior night too. So it was just really weird um, watching a surefire NBA level talent um, warming up, but, you know, asking him questions, talking with him, very respectful kid or young man, very humble. And, uh, you know, certainly put thought into each question. Uh, He's been, you know, kind of trained well, so to speak on what, what questions people in media might ask him and really just showing like a level of transparency. Like one of the questions I asked was what's the next step in your development. And he was up front and saying, my ball handling isn't where it needs to be. I know that for me to be the best version of myself, I have to be a reliable ball handler. So that's the next step in my development. And for someone to just be that self-aware while also being so awesome in his class, it was just refreshing to see someone who's like, yeah, I'm, I'm not finished yet. I'm hungry for more. Yeah. And you know, it's also, I think, you know, you mentioned the self-awareness. I mean, I think that definitely is the area for him to to look at improving, right. You know, it's, it's one thing to be like, you know, Oh, I'm gonna, you know, be working on my post-up game all off season. It's like, dude, you're a five ten point guard. Why are you doing that? Right. It's like with, with Hendricks, you know, he's, clearly identified like, okay, you know, this is something that could really help open up a lot of the rest of my game. And it's an area that I need to work on, you know, rather than, you know, sort of being afraid of admitting weakness. It's like, no, this is, you know, something that could really help me. And rather than just sort of avoiding it, because, you know, it's an area of concern for me, I'm going to tackle that head on and do the best I can to be the best player I can be. Yeah. And I mean, players are smart, right? Like, they oh, know of that course, we- I'm trying to deny that. Yeah, I, I know that you're not. What I'm saying is I, I'm leading into what I'm about to say. Like, players are smart. They know that we know what they're good and what they're bad at right now. Like, sure. Taylor yeah. is very well aware that when I brought it up, like, nationally, you're recognized as a shot blocker and a three-point shooter. You know, very clearly he knows that. And he's made, like, small improvements in his game and screening, rebounding, cutting, things of that nature. But he also knows that he's not a world-class ball handler. And I think sometimes players, are they kind of – want to protect their image and say things like, well, I haven't had a chance to to show that yet, or there's still more in my game that y'all haven't seen. And things like we hear players say stuff like that all the time. Taylor was just very open. Like, yeah, like this, that's an area that I have to improve in if I'm going to be again, the, the best version of myself. All right, Steven, thank you so much for coming back on the program. Always a fun time when I get to talk basketball with you. I guess it's my turn for the, you know, kind sappy notes. I always really appreciate you making the time to come on here and talk basketball. So now that I've gotten that out of the way, anything to plug? I know you have something coming up that I'm definitely excited to read. So you want to go ahead and plug that real quick before we wrap this up? Well, yeah, first off, Nick, you know, same sappy stuff back to you, man. You're, you're all right in my book. Um, you know, very much looking Glad forward to one out of three. <laughs> right. You know, uh, it's been awesome being able to work with you more this year than any other time that we've known each other. It's, it's been great. Um, for people who want to follow me, they can do so on Twitter. That's where I'm the most active at Stephen G Hoops. Um, my written work, as you all know, is at on noceilingsnba.com where it is free 99. Uh, if you go to the site, tell them I sent you, you can get a free article there. No problem at all. Um, you can get it if, if you don't mention me in any other day too. Um, the piece that Nick was alluding to 
was a what I'm calling um what am I calling? I'm calling it scout takes. That's what yes. I'm calling it. I'm calling it scout takes. And this is a fun concept piece where I'm going to continue to do some of the things that I've done throughout the season, throughout last season, where I do break down players and I do talk about, you know, areas of improvement, things like that. But I'm kind of drawing uh, the draft, some very trusted people within the draft community in to answer some questions and kind of give a little bit more um, variance in dialogue and discourse on some of the more popular and polarizing prospects. And the featured athlete is going to be Jalen Hushafino. So um, player that I'm like, I've been saying for the past couple podcasts, I'm getting into a scary place with how much I like him, which is what kind of led me to reaching out to other people outside of no ceilings, you know, just to, to put that out there. These are people all over the place that, that I'm drawing kind of questions from and, I think that people are, are going to be really happy with the the finished product of it. I can't wait for that to drop. Awesome. Well, he is Stephen Glassby. As he mentioned, you can find him most easily on Twitter at Stephen G Hoops. And of course, you can find his written work on NoCeilingsNBA.com. It is free, even if you don't throw in Stephen's code. So <laughs> you can feel free to check that There's out. No even code. if you were... I mean, no the code. Code, code is just go to the website. It's that simple. Yes, <laughs> subscribe. That's the code. So yes, subscribe. subscribe. And you can get infinite amounts of free um, top shelf prospect coverage from people like Nick, people like Nathan, Rucker, Metcalf, Page is starting to get into the writing fold. So you're going to want to subscribe now more so than ever because her debut piece was awesome. I can't wait to see yeah. what else she's got cooking. We've definitely got a lot cooking and definitely looking forward to that as well as your Scout Takes piece coming up. So a lot of good stuff over at NoCeilingsNBA.com. Definitely check it out and subscribe if you haven't already. You can find me on Twitter at NBA Johnson, and you can find my written work on NoCeilingsNBA.com. I wrote about C.D. Sissoko last week. That's a lot of fun. C.D. Sissoko is a ton of fun to watch, so I had a great time with that piece. If you've been enjoying the podcast, please take the time to leave a rating and or a review in whatever podcast player you might be using. That's always much appreciated on our end. And if you have any feedback regarding the deep dives portion of the podcast, feel free to reach out to me either via Twitter or email nickaj.nba at gmail.com. And as always, thanks so much for listening.